0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. With just a few days to go before Australians vote in a general election, the result is too close to call, with the opposition Labour Party hanging on to a narrow lead in the opinion polls. Padra Collins will join us from Sydney with the latest and a firm prediction of the result. But it's to London first where the Brexit talks between the government and the opposition Labour Party have entered their sixth week with no sign of a deal, and consequently, No sign of an end to Britain's Brexit agony. I'm joined now by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, it's a busy day there today with meetings with the Cabinet and and the Shadow Cabinet and and pressure growing on both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn from within their own ranks to abandon these talks. So what's the latest? The Cabinet meeting ended just a little while ago and it was a longer than usual meeting. They spent about two hours
1: talking about the talks with Labour and they were given an update on what's been going on. And they also spoke about, apparently, the individual compromises that the government was prepared to make at the end of the meeting they agreed that they would continue with these talks with Labour but they also spoke about uh, what they might do if they couldn't find a common position and some ministers spoke about this idea of what they call definitive votes where they try to find a, a position that Parliament can unite around through a series of exhaustive votes And the other thing that they agreed was that the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which is a piece of legislation that they need to pass to uh, leave the European Union, that that must be introduced in time for it to go through all its stages by the time that Parliament rises for the summer, which would usually be expected to be by the end of July. So... Uh, so there seems to be kind of some sense of urgency about bringing this bill forward. But on the other hand, they've always been rather reluctant to bring the bill forward until they knew that they had the numbers to uh, you know, to pass it. So what's not clear is, do these talks with Labour continue? And while they're carrying on, they try to bring this bill in. And do they fi- try to get Labour to agree somehow that uh, they will facilitate the introduction of the bill or do they try to go through the talks first, end them, and then carry on with this legislation?
0: And just to maybe unpick some of those uh, points, Dennis, in reverse, if you like, what's the significance of trying to bring the bill forward? Is this a, a kind of a means whereby Theresa May might try to get her deal through without, which she can't do anyway, she can't go back with the same deal, but she, she brings it forward in a different form. Is that the idea?
1: Well, she's required under the uh, the withdrawal act which was passed already she's required to have what they call a meaningful vote so parliament house of commons has an up and down vote do you approve of the withdrawal agreement or not now she's tried to have that three times and it's rejected it's been rejected three times most recently on uh you know in in march at the end of march but they uh so what they what they want to do now is to bring this other piece of legislation which would be necessary Anyway, the initial idea had been you get the meaningful vote through and then you bring through this withdrawal agreement bill. But what they think now is that if you can get a majority for the withdrawal agreement bill, what you can then do is either use that majority to pass the meaningful vote or else you amend the withdrawal agreement bill to say that this, the passage of this bill constitutes the passage of the meaningful vote. So you can use one piece of legislation to fix another piece of legislation so that that's what they would do. So one way or another, she needs to get some kind of a majority uh, behind the deal. And uh, until uh, recently, what she had been trying to do is, you know, has been to try to get a majority based on Conservative and DUP votes. And what uh, the process that started a few weeks ago with Labour was really an admission that she couldn't do that. And so they were going to try to see if they could find a cross-party compromise. But it's been quite difficult because, Labour has been making a number of demands. One is that there should be a a permanent customs union with the European Union after Brexit. And that's a very difficult compromise for many Conservatives to make because they really feel that the point of leaving the European Union, part of it is to have an independent trade policy. And they fear that if they're in a customs union, that they won't be able to do so. And then the second thing which Labour is under increasing pressure from its own ranks to demand is a referendum on any deal that is approved. So even if Parliament approves some kind of Brexit deal, uh, a lot of Labour MPs are insisting that that should go to a second referendum. And that, again, is something that's quite difficult for the Conservatives to agree to. So uh, so, so the the two sides have been kind of, uh, after each meeting, they've been saying, well, these are serious talks, but then the Labour tends to say something kind of disobliging about the fact that uh, really uh, we're not going to get anywhere until the government moves off. It's red lines, and then sometimes privately the government say, "Well, you know, Labour isn't really uh, willing to move either." And so, uh, so, so a lot of people here at Westminster have been suggesting for the last few days, you know, that there doesn't seem to be any point in these talks going on, and yet neither side appears to want to pull the plug on them. And it may be that what you find over the next few days is that while they don't actually reach a common position that they do find some way, some procedural way that they say, keep talking. And while they talk that Labour will allow this uh, withdrawal agreement bill to be introduced, and then when that's introduced, that maybe they can go through a series of options of votes, either through these exhaustive definitive votes or just as amendments to the bill. So that if you, say, want a customs union to bring that forward as an amendment and you test it, or if you want a second referendum or whatever else it happens to be that you want. Right now, it doesn't look like there's a majority for anything. But then, uh, you know, the other thing, of course, which does change the mood somewhat is these impending European Parliament elections which don't look terribly good for either party.
0: Just on those the, the definitive votes so-called I mean we've had the indicative votes and as we know the, the Parliament failed to secure a majority um, on any of the particular options put before them so changing the name from indicative to de- definitive doesn't seem like a great strategy does it?
1: Uh, no, I think it's going to be a different process. I think what they're talking about is that it would be an exhaustive process. So it would, you know, one of the methods they're talking about is using a, the single transferable vote, like we use in Irish elections, so that you know that they would order their preferences, uh, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is, and that then uh, you know, you have transfers and you end up with something. Winning the majority, which a majority of uh, people have actually voted against, perhaps, or didn't put us their number one. Trouble is that if you can produce a winner through this system, but you still have to get a majority to agree to it. And it's not clear. So, for example, if, say, uh, something like a customs union, a customs union membership were to emerge as the winner. It's first of all not clear that uh, many conservatives are going to vote for it but also a lot of those labor MPs who insist that they want a second referendum no matter what many of those are not going to vote for something like a customs union either unless it has a second referendum uh, just because it happens to be the thing that emerged as the winner out of this process so uh, so I think it's you know the idea is probably that it somehow concentrates minds that it does give people who want an excuse to move off their uh, you know, their fixed position that they might be able to do so. And also that just that it's, you know, in a sense, the government has to try to do something. She really has to just give this thing one more try to see if she can get the uh, withdrawal agreement passed.
0: Now, while all of these discussions are going on um, about, about the talks and about for future options and so on, Olly Robbins, Mrs May's Brexit negotiator, has gone back to Brussels today for talks. What on earth is there to talk to Brussels about? <laughs> Well, they're both both sides actually are being rather coy about this. Uh, in Brussels,
1: they're saying they're still on their Brexit break, as they call it. And, that, uh, and I was speaking to some people in Brussels uh, yesterday who were playing down the significance of this visit. And likewise here, they say oh, it's just part of his regular engagement to keep in touch. What we think he's probably talking about is that he's going to ask, Uh, about possible changes to the the political declaration. The Brexit deal is in two parts. There's the legally binding withdrawal agreement and then the non-binding joint political declaration, which really sets out the kind of future relationship the two sides are aiming for. The European Union has said they're quite happy to make changes to the political declaration, although the withdrawal agreement can't be reopened. And what Ollie Robbins may be talking about is the kind of changes that... uh, some of the options under discussion with the Labour Party might require. And one of the things that, for example, Labour is looking for is what they call entrenchment, that any deal that's done between uh, the government and the Labour Party about uh, various commitments that that would be uh, about the future relationship with the EU, that somehow these could be entrenched in the political declaration in such a way that a new Conservative Prime Minister, like, say, Boris Johnson, would not be able to just tear it up and uh, change direction so they want to make sure that whatever agreement they make doesn't just die with mrs may's premiership and so i think one of the things that ollie robbins will be talking about is just what you might how you might be able to put that sort of thing into the political declaration what are the options and what's acceptable and what's not going to be a runner
0: okay so he may be able to come back from brussels with something that would facilitate progress in in the talks in other words um and yeah. Just to move on, Dennis, from that as well, you mentioned there the, the the background to all of this, these European elections are taking place that nobody, well, certainly Theresa May didn't want to to have or to be involved in. Um, how, how much panic is the performance of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party um, in opinion polls? How much panic is that sowing in Conservative and Labour ranks?
1: It's sowing huge uh, panic in conservative ranks, much more so in conservative ranks than in Labour ranks. Uh, One of the recent opinion polls put the uh, Brexit party, Nigel Farage's Brexit party, on 34 percent with the conservatives on 11 percent. And the same poll put the Labour Party on 21 percent. So the Farage Brexit party would uh, have more support than the two main parties put together. Now, what seems to be happening is that the the Brexit vote, two thirds of the people who voted for Brexit in uh, 2016 are now backing the Brexit party. And huge numbers of conservatives have decided that they are at least going to lend Nigel Farage their vote. Because it's really an expression of frustration about the fact that Brexit, which was due to happen on the 29th of March, has not happened yet and i was i was at a brexit party rally in durham at the weekend and it was very striking uh, that most of the people there were old they were actually very old and uh, i was comfortably within the youngest 25% of them so it was a, a, an uplifting feeling in that respect but it was but they were really really uh, you know it was the most striking thing about them so how many walking sticks how many hearing aids all the rest of it and they were almost overwhelmingly conservative voters and although a lot of the rhetoric is of anger and betrayal and they enjoyed watching Anne Whitcomb and uh, and Nigel Farage talking about that, what you really felt when you were talking to them was just that they were frustrated that Brexit hadn't happened. But if Brexit were to happen and the Conservatives had a new leader, like say Boris Johnson, they'd immediately be back to the Conservative Party. But for the moment, What's happening is that the Conservatives are bleeding support to the Brexit party. On the Labour side, the opposite is happening. That what seems to be eating into their vote are the pro-Remain parties. Because of the fact that Labour has had this ambiguous uh, policy about Brexit and hasn't actually come out and uh, fully endorsed the idea of a second referendum, Uh, What you've seen is that a lot of Labour votes seem to be going to the Liberal Democrats who have kind of risen from the dead after uh, some years in the doldrums following their uh, coalition with the Conservatives. So they're now back up and running and doing well. As are the Greens, the new party, Change UK, hasn't really made much of an impression at all. But still, the combination of the Liberal Democrats and the Greens is enough to depress the Labour vote. Labour is losing some votes to the Brexit party, but not nearly as much as they are to the Remain party. So so in a way, the, uh, the, the, the two main parties are being... Uh, are, are being, uh, they're suffering because their votes are going to people on a more polar side, on the two poles of the debate on
0: Brexit. And is there any indication, Dennis, that, the, that Jeremy Corbyn is now prepared to change tack and that beginning to recognise that maybe this idea of trying to ride two horses is not working?
1: It seems to he seems to be quite reluctant to do so. I mean, there's certainly there's you know within his party a number of uh, a number of senior figures, Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, he said that no. Uh, bill, or, you know, no deal, no Brexit deal, was likely to pass the Commons unless it had a confirmatory referendum attached to it. And, And he said that, you know, 150 Labour MPs just wouldn't vote for anything that didn't have a referendum. And the deputy leader of the party, Tom Watson, said something similar. So you have increasing unrest within the party Jeremy Corbyn and his inner circle are still reluctant to come down too firmly on one side or another because they do believe, apart from anything they might personally believe about Brexit, they do believe that they can't afford to lose seats in those heavily leave voting traditional industrial heartlands in the north and in the midwest and that uh, they not only uh, need to hold those seats but they actually need to pick up some seats in that in those parts of the country if they're to win a majority in the next general election so he's i think still hoping he's reluctant to come down firmly in favor of a second referendum but the time may be running out for him to to make up his mind
0: and finally dennis uh, Theresa may has an appointment on thursday with the executive of the 1922 committee of back bench MPs. um, Is this the day when she will finally be forced to name the date for her departure?
1: What she has promised already is that she will leave uh, as soon as her Brexit deal is through. And uh, then she'll hand over to somebody else for the next phase of the negotiations. The problem is that the implication there is that if they don't pass her Brexit deal, she might never leave. And so what the, uh, the executive of the 1922 committee want her to tell them on Thursday is when is she going to leave whether the deal is passed one way or another i find it hard to see how she can think about going on much beyond the end of june because if the deal is going to go through we'll know by then it is probably and if it's not then we will probably also know that so so one way or another i think she's going to have to give some kind of firmer Uh, timetable but she she does seem to be very reluctant to name an actual date Uh, probably for some understandable reasons that the moment she does she's even more dead in the water than she was before.
0: Dennis, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. That was Dennis Staunton, our London editor. It's to Australia now, where voters go to the polls on Saturday after a fractious election campaign that has seen the opposition Labour Party cling to a narrow lead over the ruling Liberal National Coalition in opinion polls. Our correspondent, Padraig Collins, joins me now from Sydney. Uh, Padraig, Australia has had this centre-right government, the Liberal National National Coalition now, for six years or so, or going on six years. Is that run, does it look like that run is about to come to an end?
2: Well, Labour's been leading in every poll for basically since the last election. So almost three years of leading in the polls. So based on that, you would have to assume they were favorite to win. The latest polling was 51-49 after preferences to the Labour Party. If an election was held today, that would lead to 77 Labour seats, 68 Liberal National Coalition and six others. 77 would be enough to win for Labour because there are 151 seats. That, that would be very tight because if they had one person as the speaker, that would mean 76 each. So every vote would potentially go to the speaker to decide...
0: But the polls didn't narrow, didn't they? Just uh, maybe at the, around the start of the campaign. And what happened there? Why did Labour's lead become sort of so tight when it looked like they were in the driving seat?
2: Yeah, it was even in March, it was 56-44 and it's tightened to 51-49, which is a considerable tightening. Labour's polling always narrows in an election. It, it won't, once the campaign gets going, it, it happens every single time. I, I don't know exactly why that is but it always does, even when Labour ends up winning. And possibly it's because people like the idea of a protest vote, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of the campaign, they think, oh, maybe better the devil you know than the devil you don't.
0: And what kind of a campaign has it been, uh, Podrick? What kind of standout moments have there been?
2: Well, there was a, a standout moment again today when Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, said that he doesn't think gays are going to hell, which... Can you imagine somebody in Ireland having to come out and say that? The the, the the Taoiseach having to come out and say that? It's just such a ridiculous statement that he had to come out and say that.
0: And what was the background the, to that? Why was he asked that particular question?
2: Well, people might have heard of an Australian rugby player called Israel Folau, who his car- rugby career looks like being over because he said gays amongst other people, drunks being another one, are going to hell. And... Falau belongs to the same fundamentalist Christian religion that Scott Morrison belongs to, a Pentecostal Protestant religion. So Morrison was asked on Monday, did he think that gays were going to hell? And he he didn't answer the question. So Labour used that against him to say, Scott Morrison refuses to say that gays are going to hell. But... So Morrison came out today and said no, he doesn't think gays are going to hell. But the fact that, for what, for for a start, he should have just said no in the first place when he was asked the question. Secondly, he should have just seen that that was going to happen. That if he didn't <laughs> rule it out immediately as a possibility, that Labour would make hay with it, and they did. And so he was forced to rule it out, and it becomes an issue for two days. Then, so that's an own goal by Morrison in a country which voted pretty much the same as Ireland did last year or two years ago to legalise gay marriage.
0: And prior to that, Patrick, what have been the dominant uh, concerns of Australians in uh, voting this election? What have been the main issues of the campaign? It's
2: a complete turnaround from the norm. It, usually the opposition parties run what they call here a small target campaign where they, they don't have a lot of policies and they kind of say, me too, to everything that the government is doing. And that the government makes the running by announcing new policies. But this time it's completely the opposite. Labour has a whole raft of policies and the Liberal National Coalition has very little. Uh, most, they spent most of the campaign traducing and denouncing Labour's policies. They're basically saying it's tax and spend, Labour and... They'll have their hands in your pocket and they'll they'll take all your hard in, earned cash. The, one of the things that Labour is promising to do away with is a thing called franking credits, which means that if you pay, if you have shares and the, the company has already paid tax on those shares, when you get a... A dividend, you can claim a frank, what's called a franking credit, off the, off your own tax bill, because the company has already paid tax on it. But the problem is that a, six billion of that goes to people who pay zero tax because they're retired. So basically, they're they're getting a tax. A refund for tax they haven't paid in the first place. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, only in Australia. If you were to come up with this plan today, people would laugh you out of it and say what a stupid idea. So Labour is Labour's policy is to do away with that, that's saying that, that that's six billion that the government, that the country can't afford that it's better spent on, on health and education. And the, the government has run a scare campaign saying Labour will tax every old person and make their life a, a misery, which is just nonsense if anybody bothers to stop and think about it because... But is, is there a powerful
0: grave, sorry for cutting in on you, Potter, is there a powerful sort of grave vote in Australia that we, we've seen this in, in Ireland and elsewhere where people have tried to take away any kind of entitlements from older people they have suffered quite a severe backlash?
2: There is, and but in other countries... The the grey vote is important because they actually do get out and vote. They're even more important here because it's compulsory to vote. Everybody has to vote, and Australia is one of the few countries in the world that has compulsory voting. So, it, everybody everybody has their hand out for something. But the older the grey vote, as you call it, is is, is more organised at having their hand out and the, the younger people get left behind. But Labour is trying to appeal to younger people this time with, one, taking away this benefit of, of six billion a year, which doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, and two, trying to make it easier for people to get on the, the housing market because Australia has such a, a high cost of housing in most capital cities.
0: What about the personalities involved, Could you Tell us something about Bill Shorten, the Labour leader. He's been leader of the Labour Party now for nearly six years, but he hasn't had an opportunity to serve as prime minister. Could you tell us something about him? He was
2: a minister in the previous Labour government from 2007 to 2013. And he came in at the 2007 election and wasn't immediately minister, but he was a union leader before that. He was quite prominent as a union leader. He also played a, a big role in, first of all, knocking over Kevin Rudd, who was the Labour Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010. Rudd was replaced by Julia Gillard. Three years later, Shorten was involved again in knocking over Gillard to bring Rudd back. So he has blood in his hands with uh, Australia's constantly changing uh, prime ministers as well. But he says that he's learned from that and the, the Liberals haven't learned from that. They've had three different Prime Ministers in the past six years. And overall, we've had six five Prime Ministers in the last six years, and it'll be a sixth if Shorten wins. I think the fact that he wasn't involved in both the knocking off of Rudd first and then Gillard, that's one of the reasons that he isn't very popular. People are aware that he, he was involved in those shenanigans. And he's quite robotic in how he speaks. And he's improved a lot over the years. He's obviously had, I mean, he he admits it himself. He's had some training from some coaching as to how to better engage with the public.
0: You, you alluded there, Patrick, to the, the Game of Thrones, if you like, that has played out in the Liberal National Coalition. We've had three prime ministers since that party took power. Scott Morrison, who you mentioned earlier, has been in the job only since last August, um, how is he? How is he perceived to have performed in that job?
2: I I don't see that he has done a whole lot since then. He he, he tries to a, a, a phrase that he uses a lot is that Australia will meet its Paris commitments on climate change in a canter, which is it, simply not true. That the government is doing little to nothing on climate change and. The, the main one of the main reasons they they knocked over Turnbull was because he wanted to bring in what was called the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, which Labor backed, which would have gone some way to doing something about climate change, addressing climate change. So I, I really can't point, point my finger to to much that Morrison has done at all. He he tries to claim credit for being part of the government that passed gay marriage, but he didn't actually even vote on it. He he campaigned against it and then when it came to a vote in Parliament to pass the resulting law after the referendum, he he absented himself from the chamber and, and didn't vote. So he, he he, he, he says he didn't vote against it. Well, he didn't, of course, because he didn't vote for it either.
0: One thing he has done, I think, is made a phone call am my right to every um, every voter in advance of this ele- election <laughs> on on Saturday. I'm just wondering what what is he, what has he said in that call, and uh, and and is that a kind of a, a usual, a normal manoeuvre in Australian politics?
2: No, I I live in a seat called Moringa, and the, my sitting member is Tony Abbott, which is the. The prime. first of the Liberal three Prime Ministers. And Abbott normally does win easily in, in this constituency. He's been served. he's been the MP for here for twenty five years and he's never had to he's never had a serious challenge, but he does this time from a, a woman called Zally Stegel. She's scared him, basically. So he's pulling out all the big guns. I I've got a robocalled by Abbott twice. Uh, This evening I got robocalled by Scott Morrison. I got a letter from Scott Morrison addressed to me, not just the Householder. I got a letter from John Howard, another former Liberal Prime Minister again addressed to me. And just today I got uh, another letter addressed to me from the, the Treasurer so they obviously they, knew they knew
0: you were coming on the Irish Times podcast, uh, Patrick, by the sound <laughs> of it. Um, can, can I just ask you, we, we've discussed up to now just the two, you know, I suppose the, the, the two protagonists, the Labour Party on one side and the Liberal National Coalition on the other. Is Australia still pretty much a sort of two party system or what about the phenomenon we've seen in Europe but a rise in populist parties and independence? Is that also is that also happening in Australia?
2: Yes, but it doesn't happen in the lower house. The There are enough people on the Fairly far right in the liberal and national party, that the the that the far the the minor far right parties don't get a look in in the lower house, but in the senate they do. And the one nation is the big party of the far right, and they they, what happens what tends to happen with them is they get maybe four people elected, but within months and certainly within a year the three of the four will leave because nobody gets on with the leader of one nation is a woman called Pauline Hansen I, I think it's just because she is dictatorial in it's it's her way or the highway and people take the highway and leave so she's in the last after the last election she started with four and it was four senators and then it was down to just one herself but her profile, has, hasn't has been as strong this time, because there is a, a guy called Clive Palmer, who's a, a businessman and self-declared billionaire. He has a party called the United Australia Party, and they are spending 70 million in advertising, which is actually more than Labour and the Liberal Nationals are spending combined. It's a phenomenal amount of money, and... He, basically, it will get him elected into the Senate from Queensland, and but he's he's got people running in every single seat in the lower house as well. I don't think he will win anything in the lower house, but he will certainly get elected himself in, in the Senate. And curiously, he's not even in the country at the moment. He's in Fiji on holidays and... So he'll be celebrating with his feet up in a hammock probably when he gets elected on Saturday evening.
0: Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now, uh, Patrick. Who's going to win this election?
2: Labour is going to win. I just, I cannot see a way that you you win every poll for the past three years and lose the election. Uh, They should have had it wrapped up by now, really, but... But it's it's two million people have already voted because of what's called pre-polling. That means because it's compulsory voting, they have to make it as easy as possible for people to vote. So two million have already voted. So we may not know on Saturday night because of the pre-polling and the postal voting. But it will be. I think it'll be close Labour's not going to win by much but they will win
0: So that's great Patrick. Not a man to shirk a challenge Thank you for that Um, That's all for this week For more on these and other stories go to irishtimes.com Thanks for listening Goodbye for now